So this evening is March 27th. It's uh, 2013. Our message this evening is called Three Days and Three Nights. Turn with me to Exodus 12. When we're through with our teaching this evening, we're going to have communion with each other. Hopefully it'll be a meaningful experience. You know, we call it communion, but Israel calls it Passover. We think that the Lord instituted something new. And He did in the sense that He gave us a new command to love each other as He has loved us. But it was not a new command. It was actually an old command. Leviticus 19 had taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus just taught us the way to take what Moses had told us and make it a vibrant reality in our lives. And in this, maybe you hear echoes from 1 John that we've heard these things, we've heard the old command, but now in Christ we've seen them. One of the things that we see in the Lord's Supper is we see Passover coming to life in a new way. But we first need to look at Exodus 12 to see that. Is that okay? Are you in Exodus 12, 1? Now we're going to read some lengthy passages tonight, but they're worth reading. So I'm going to ask you, don't zone out, you know, shake yourself, rouse yourself, do whatever it takes. Pretend you're in an IMAX movie, and I bet it'll grab your attention. Okay, here comes Exodus 12.1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. What a crazy thing. This had never been the first month of their year before. The first month of their year before had been Tishri. That's just the way that it, it had worked. And... This led to a separation in their calendars. They kept a civil calendar, and they now kept a religious calendar. And the two would never meet again. You know, when you first meet Messiah, your life changes. You number the years from your birth, but your life really started when you were born again. Something about receiving the Passover lamb changes everything for you. Their year used to start in autumn, but now it's going to start in spring when life begins. Can you say amen? amen? Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. One for each household. When God designed the plan of salvation, He desired that all men would be saved. He's not willing that any should perish. The grace of God has appeared to all men and is teaching us to say no to ungodliness. All of these scriptures point to one thing. There's enough lamb to go around, friends. Jesus has provided salvation for the entire world, and it is incumbent upon us to receive what He has provided. There were enough lambs in this situation to save all of Israel. I don't know whether every single Israelite did what they should do. I know a few Egyptians jumped on the bandwagon and wanted to be included with God's people. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. Oh my goodness, how many of you have consumed all of Jesus there is to consume? Is there enough left over to share something good with the people on your left and right? Is there enough of His goodness to take to work and share with the people there? Or is there only a limited amount and you need to keep it for yourself? When they shared the Passover lamb, it was never just about their household. It was always about the community at large. We are our brother's keeper. And now that you've received Christ, the Passover lamb, 
We are supposed to share him with all who are around us. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Does that surprise you? In Hebrew, this is an oz. A sheep or a goat, both oz. There's no difference. A lot of people feel like you can tell when someone's young from the side of the tracks they were born on, from their socioeconomic status, from what their parents were like, what they're going to turn out to be. But in Hebrew, whether you were a sheep or a goat, you were just an oz until you matured enough that we could see a difference in your behavior. And the goats were always butting the sheep, and the sheep were easily led. So while they were babies, they had all things in common. When they matured, their behavior distinguished them. I would like to encourage you, no one is born in an unsavable situation. Nobody is trapped in a sinful lifestyle from birth that cannot be broken. Jesus is big enough to change it all Amen. for everyone. Amen. And pastors that presume to be able to look at someone and know whether they're worthy of salvation have exalted themselves above God. Because he simply made provision for all and said, whosoever will, those are the ones that I'll save. Come on, say amen. amen. Is anybody in the house saved tonight? Yeah. Hallelujah. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. On the 10th day of the month, you took this little lamb into your house. On the 14th day of the month, at twilight, you slaughtered him. Israel slaughtered their Passover lamb, killed by Israel for Israel. This forever settles the question of did the Jews kill Jesus? Of course they did. It was God's will because he was announced as the Passover lamb. He was killed by Israel, first and foremost, for Israel. And praise God, their stumbling as a nation has led room or left room, an opportunity for you to receive a Passover lamb. Amen. How dare us look down upon Israel for making a mistake that we made ourselves. Anybody in here wedded Jesus on a Sunday and divorced him on a Monday? Yeah. Don't lie, I'm your pastor. Okay, there you go. We had a hand in the back, praise God, for a single honest soul in the house tonight. What were you doing for 10 days with this lamb? Can you imagine? I brought a goat here last year. Wasn't it last year we got Bubba? Bubba had hoof and mouth disease. Bubba had problems. I got Bubba from an African grocery with the help of Michael. And uh, when I returned Bubba, I returned him in a crate. I returned him with food and water. And the man named Coffee, that was his name, walked over and he laughed, slapped his belly, laughed, talked to his friends in Swahili, pointed back and laughed at how we treated this little goat, right? He reached in the cage, he grabbed him by his back hooves and threw him from my truck over the fence and into the pen. Because to him, it's just food. Well, if you had to live with that little thing, though, in your house for four days, what do you think your children would do? I remember my son who has some brutal tendencies in him. He's got a great little heart, but... If he doesn't turn into a missionary, he'll probably take over the world as a soldier. We're shaping him now. I put the knife in his hand last year. I said, you want to be the first to put Bubba to death? He trembled. And all the ladies gasped. It's a difficult thing to kill something, especially if you love it. Anybody in here like to sacrifice your dog? 
moment this morning, and, and my dog had turned over my garbage can, and I did want to sacrifice him for a moment, but the, the wrath passed. What I'm trying to say is, for four whole days, they examined these lambs. Now, from a legalistic purity standpoint, to require the, the to meet the requirements for righteousness, this lamb had to be perfect. No blemishes. And perhaps the four days were for that. But I think that the four days were a bonding period. A chance that you could identify with this innocent little animal and realize he didn't deserve to do anything to die. But you needed him to die. What an interesting concept that is. Have you noticed that we preach a bloodless Christianity these days? Nobody actually identifies with Jesus. They simply say he died for the sins of the world. And that sounds so neat. That's like a confectionary little statement. But when you say, he died for my sin, he died for what I said yesterday when no one else was around. It starts to become a whole lot more personal than that, doesn't it? You start to feel the guilt of its blood on your hands. This is how the gospel faith begins. And the Lord taught this first to Israel. Then you are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the house, and they are to eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs made without yeast. Do not eat meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. See, this was not just a meal. God himself was going to send an agent of death into their domiciles, into their countryside. While standing in Egypt, they had seen a distinction in the way that God treated Egyptians and the way God treated them. It could be light in Goshen, but be dark in Egypt. And they were about to find out that the distinction would not just be based on nationality, the distinction would be based on the blood of an innocent lamb. This is a major event in human history because many have summed up the language and the nation and the um, Bible of the Jewish people as something that is simply based on national identity. But God says from the beginning it would be based upon those who were covered under the blood. What would happen if you were not covered under the blood? That very evening, your firstborn son would die. What kind of wailing there must have been in Egypt. I, I imagine that the world has never known that kind of wailing again. That every firstborn son in an entire nation died. We must never forget something about our salvation. The day that you were saved, others will be judged. Do you hear me? The day you stand before the King of Kings, your salvation will include the retribution for the wicked. Now, if your heart delights in that, something's wrong. We've not received the nature of Christ. Have you been shown mercy, friends? Did you buy it? Did you earn it? You were shown mercy, so how could we not want that every person we meet be shown mercy? See, this is the living, breathing, active faith that is in us. We trust that God saved us even though we didn't deserve it. He made a way with a Passover lamb, a 
of sorts for us, even though we never could have been pleasing to Him without Him enabling us. And we believe He can do it for the next man. And if you don't believe that, what you're inherently saying is you deserved it. And He didn't. This is a starch reminder for all of our relatives that we're going to see at what the world calls Easter. Some of them may look beyond salvation. Some of them may have squandered so many opportunities, you think they're not worthy of another. And on any other day, I might agree with you. But the truth is, we didn't deserve it either. And yet in His mercy, death has passed us over. Come on, say hallelujah for that. Hallelujah. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. If you believe that the Lord was going to strike down every unsaved person tomorrow, you would have your cloak tucked in your belt. You would have unleavened bread. You would be wearing your sandals. You would not be preparing your 401k. You would not be fantasizing about your next Cadillac. You would not be looking at what you could acquire. Your whole life would be in haste. You would be passing through as an alien and a stranger. You would be looking at this world as something that would pass away and be replaced by the kingdom of God. How we have lost that perspective. But this is where it begins. See, today we, want, we believe that Jesus inherently wants us rich, fat, and happy. We have raised up for ourselves teachers that are so obsessed with it that they hold up their opulence as the goal for your faith. They can't even appeal to you to sacrifice before God without having manipulation in it. You sacrifice before God and He will send back to you seven times, they said. There was none of that in the purity of this faith. There were simply people who were covered under the blood and ready to leave the system of Egypt behind and embrace God's kingdom. And then there were those who weren't. I believe that in the last days, God will again bring us to a place where the line is that clear, the distinction is that clear. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. I skipped some, I'm sorry. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Did you know that God is not just judging mankind? His act of salvation in your life is actually a judgment on the gods of this world, whatever they may be. They are powerless to save. They are deceivers and liars and murderers from the beginning. And yet, something in our base nature craves all that they have to offer. And if we do not circumcise our hearts, we cannot receive the land. But when we receive the Lamb, it passes judgment on the gods of this world. His blood is sufficient. All other methods have fallen short. In my lifetime, I have seen people bought and sold. I've seen them rented like farm equipment in Amsterdam. I have watched people worship rats and dogs and chickens. I have seen people fall on the ground before what they call holy sepulchers and kiss the pavement and relish in the water. And it is all powerless to save. But a single moment in the presence of the living God changes a man forever Amen. and ever. Amen. It places a judgment on the gods of this
you have to do is look at the actions of a life. And if it says this world is insufficient and he is my all sufficient, then you have met someone who is passing from death and into life. And we learn this from the Passover. This is the day you are to commemorate for generations to come. I skip the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. How interesting is it that God did not rapture the Israelites out of Egypt? How interesting is it that he was able to make a distinction in his ten plagues between the Israelites and the Egyptians? How interesting is it that God's idea of deliverance is taking you through fire, not causing you to escape it altogether? It almost sounds like Psalm 91 where he says, I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and rescue him for he calls on my name is the heart of God. We learn this from Israel at the Passover. This is the day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. There is a great and dreadful day of the Lord coming, friends. Every time we take Passover, every time we take communion, we're celebrating its coming. It is a day of life for those who will receive the Lamb. And it is a day of dread, fear, gloom, and awe for those who have not received Him. What is a party for the sons of God is a judgment day for the sons of the enemy. Oh, how I pray we be found as sons of God. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through the seventh day, must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly. And, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. You would receive a Passover lamb, and at the same time, the end of your Passover meal was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It would begin the 15th day of Nisan, which would, in all reality, be the second day of your new life. And do you know what you spent it doing? Removing all of the yeast that represented sin in the old life. Your father would lead you through the house with the menorah, the light of God's Word. And they would search every corner. It's where the world gets the idea of spring clean from. And when you identified yeast in any form, anywhere, the father and the mother would take the children outside, put it in a bag, and light it on fire. He wanted us to know how to deal with sin. We would not be a people who would simply be covered under the blood. We would be a people who would walk in that sacrificial life that the Lamb taught us. Is there something to be learned from the typology of Israel? Is there something to be learned from the goodness of God's Word? Yeah. The most basic dates that you could get out of this. 
And then on the 10th of Nisan, a lamb would be selected. On the 14th of Nisan, a lamb would be slaughtered. And on the 15th of Nisan, there would be a special new beginning. It would be a holy day, a sacred assembly, the feast of unleavened bread. A day in which you celebrated being yeast free. Turn with me to Leviticus 21. Y'all still awake? You still yeah. with me? I know that you guys have the book of Leviticus memorized. There's no reason to turn here. But just for the couple of you that are still struggling to memorize the whole book, I thought I would read this because I myself am having difficulty with the memorization of it. Something that most Jewish children by the age of nine in the day of Jesus had accomplished. Leviticus 23, here comes the first verse. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts. The appointed feast of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. The word here for sacred assembly is mikra. It is the same word as rehearsal. It's not just a sacred assembly, it is also a rehearsal. In other words, if you were going to have a wedding, when JJ and Natalie got married the night before, they had a rehearsal. It was not the night of their actual wedding, it was a night rehearsing for their wedding. Nick and Sam will soon do this. And Nick will stand and he'll look into Sam's eyes and she'll look into his eyes and the whole congregation of the saints will go weak in the knees for a moment. But they won't actually be married, will they? No, the marriage, the fulfillment is yet to come. This is what we see when we look at the Feast of Israel. We see rehearsals for something that was yet to come. We see something that should stir our heart and let us know what it will look like, where we should stand, what we should say, how we should move. But the fulfillment is yet to come. He said, speak to them, tell them about these things. And in verse 3, he says, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is the Sabbath to the Lord. I've often heard it said that we do not honor the Sabbath in this country, but if you just take our unemployment rate, you might argue that there's a great many of us who are not working. This was never what the Sabbath was about, friends. We can approach 14% unemployment when you add all the numbers up, and it doesn't honor God at all. But taking one day in seven to acknowledge he's God and you're not. That he can run the world just fine without you. Oh, this is bringing glory to God. The fourth verse. These are the Lord's appointed feasts. The sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. Could you say that for me? At their appointed times. At their appointed Our calendars have been corrupted. What they call the early church fathers set out personally with a vicious vendetta against the Jewish people to separate our religious calendar from their religious calendar. By the time we reached the Council of Nicaea in 325, it was the goal of the Greek fathers in the assembly to make sure that it was not possible that Passover and Easter ever lined up again. They sought to de-emphasize the Jewish roots of the gospel in order to make their own footing as Greek fathers more firm. But God himself set the times and dates because they are rehearsals. Now, I mentioned Nick and Sam would be married soon. Do you have a date? 
Could you say the date, please? Proclaim it to the sacred assembly. April 13th. How would you feel if someone else arbitrarily decided that that was not a good date? Instead, we ought to pick the 11th. Is that going to mess with your plans? If a man doesn't like it, if a man doesn't want it done on the wrong day, how much more do you think God doesn't want it done on the wrong day? Now brace yourselves, saints. I am not here to revise our calendar. I'm not here to purport to make you Jewish. I am a pork-eating Gentile and a proud one at that. It is absolutely my favorite meal and favorite thing to do to smoke the biggest pork loin I can find. Having said that, it is no one's right to change what God has established. Amen. I want to learn from the ruler. I do not want to move the ruler to make it more satisfactory to me. Amen. Are the numbers on your tape measure arbitrary? Do they differ from tape measure to tape measure? They do not. That's what makes it a tape measure. Make no mistake about it, friends. Israel is the standard. The rest of us can look at our societies, look at our lives. We can look at the king of Israel and see the perfect standard. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins for seven days. You must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no work. For seven days, present an offering made to the Lord by fire. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do more, no work. I know it sounds like I'm redundant, but if, if God said it twice, perhaps I could say it twice. Now, we all know what Passover is. But how many of you have ever considered in your life holding a sacred assembly for the Feast of Unleavened Bread? It never crosses our mind. It never occurs to us. It never crosses the average believer's mind that when we read a statement in the New Testament that says, now it was the day before a Sabbath, that there could be more than one Sabbath that week. Because we didn't care enough to see how many God prescribed. Oh, Jesus. I hope you'll be able to forgive me for the things that I have to share with you tonight. If we don't understand the culture that we are studying, if we have not taken the time to remove the American filter, then you have to know that misunderstandings will abound. While we're on that topic, could you give me the picture that looks like this, not this one. Give me Da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper. How about that? I don't know if there's ever been a Jew in the history of the world that looked like that. But that's how Da Vinci saw Jesus. This is his last supper. Now we know from the New Testament that the last supper occurs at Passover. Passover occurs at twilight. Is it dark outside in Da Vinci's painting? It is not. We know from the scripture that they reclined at the table. Are these men reclining at the table? They are not. We know that you ate a Passover lamb. Is there a lamb on the table? There is not. In fact, as you look carefully, while everyone is looking for Da Vinci's code of some kind or another, the thing that jumps out to me is the man had no concept of what a Passover would look like. And yet this represents to most 
what the Passover is? Do we have a cultural misunderstanding? Does it matter if Jesus was Norwegian or French or Mexican? Would it make a difference? You know, when I'm in Matamoros, I asked a man for a sandwich. He looked at me like I was insane. He didn't know what a sandwich was. I said, taco de gringo. He, he knew exactly what I was talking about. It makes a difference. When God began to line this out and the nation took it so seriously that to this day they're persecuted around the world for not wanting to bend even one inch, we should take note. You can leave that picture up for a little while. Is that okay? From Leviticus, let us pick back up in the ninth verse, 23 verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you and reap its harvest. Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. Which begs a question. Which Sabbath? We've just found out that the 14th of Nisan would be Passover. The 15th of Nisan would be a sacred assembly. And then one day in seven was always a Sabbath. And which Sabbath do we need to do the first fruits after? The nation of Israel came to the conclusion that God meant after the weekly Sabbath. Now if we've only ever heard the word Sabbath in relation to a Saturday then already in understanding the Passover week, we're going to have some problems. The same kind of problems that a painting like this one has when conveying a concept that it doesn't begin to do justice. All of the Gospel writers make it abundantly clear that Jesus was crucified the week of the Passover, on the day the Passover lamb was given. And according to Moses, there's multiple Sabbaths on that day, on that week. The 14th of Nisan is the day that you would kill the lamb. The 15th of Nisan was a high or special Sabbath. Whatever day Saturday was on that week was a Sabbath. Whatever seven days from the 15th, whatever the 21st fell on, was a Sabbath. And there was a feast of first fruits after whichever weekly Sabbath came. Does that confuse you? Yes. Have you ever tried to figure out on our holidays that, that move in the calendar four years from now when it's going to fall? I mean, thank God for Thanksgiving, right? It's always on a Thursday. It's as American as you get. We're too simple to figure out the rest. But on calendar dates that move, every year Christmas falls on a different day. I mean, not a different day of the month, but a different day of the week. Passover would fall on different days of the week every year. And yet we celebrate a good Friday, as if Friday was the day that was important, always. You know, while we're talking about these things, I would just like to say that when we're examining the crucifixion of Jesus, which we're doing tonight, and we will draw practical applications from it, the Feast of Israel has got to be our roadmap. The typology of the prophets and the words of Jesus have to be our guidelines. And then whatever chronology you come to cannot violate the very customs of the people who held them and adhered to them, or else it would make no sense. You certainly cannot believe that a nation that would give their life 
for the letter of the law would break the law for their holidays every year. That is nonsensical. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah, Micah, name. Say there when you were there. In the first chapter of Jonah, which apparently no one has made it to yet. There you go. When they call him a minor prophet, they lie. He's a major prophet. Jesus quoted him. He's as major as he gets. He got a whole city to repent. How are you doing on that scale? Makes me want to move to a smaller town. In the book of Jonah, let us pick up in the ninth verse. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. At least Jonah was honest. How many of you have been running from the Lord and you're lying about it? How many of you have been running from the Lord and you can't come clean? He's made a storm in your life that is devouring everyone around you, but you cannot come clean and just say, I am not living up to his calling. Oh my goodness, Jonah was an honest man at least. As we move to the 10th verse, 11th verse, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. I can't help but tell you, friends, disobedience to God makes your life rougher and rougher. There is no exception to the rule. Look at your neighbor and say, God does not like you better than me. He is no respecter of persons. If this was true in Jonah's life, it would be true in our lives. If you run the opposite direction that God tells you to go, you have to expect rough seas. And if you blame God for it, friends, then the Proverbs calls us a fool. It is our fault if we disobey God and suffer consequence. The same way it is a man's fault if he steps out of an airplane and experiences gravity. It simply is how God has made things. Sin brings destruction. If we want to live lives that are sinful lives, there is going to be rough seas. What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? We have the same principle that we have in a Passover lamb. Something must be done to him to help us. Oh my goodness. Jonah deserved it. Jesus did not. We deserve it. The little Passover lamb didn't. But it is the principle of substitution. And it shows up all over the Bible. That one man would give his life as a ransom for many men. Has that ransom been useful in your life? Do you love him? Do you love him? Oh, get used to saying it out loud. Do you love him? Who taught Christians to be so meek in mind? Who told us that we had to keep our mouths shut, keep our hands down and play nice and be quiet? The church didn't start this way. We stood to emperors. We stood to fires. We stood to guillotines. Nothing could shut us up or back us up from what we knew was God's will. I said, rise up, church. What is wrong with us? Don't let anybody pull the lion's teeth. The righteous are as bold as lions. Not when we preach, when we live. Come on now, when we live. Anybody can preach a message. But I want to go live it before the world. I love the Lamb of God. Do you love Him? Do you love Him? 
this great storm has come upon you. If it had been Jesus, he could say, lift me up and your seas will become calm. Because I know that it is your fault that this has happened, but I will take it. Just like the little Passover lamb. Oh, what power there is in admitting something is your fault. As Americans, it's never our fault. It's someone else's fault. It's his fault, her fault, Jerry Springer's fault, anybody's fault but my fault. We have no fault divorces. We have no fault tennis courts. We have no fault. The fault lies with us. And every Israelite covered in blood knew it. Oh, that those who profess to be under the blood of Jesus would know it. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you have pleased. Oh, are there echoes of the first century in this statement? We talk in terms of blood liable and who is culpable in the death of Jesus. He is Israel's Passover lamb, friends. Of course they put him to death. But let me ask you, would you have made a different choice? There were a couple brave women and one scared Jewish boy who even attended the crucifixion. Do you presume that you would have done differently? And if you do presume that if you had been there, you would not have done such a thing, then let us think about the last seven or eight days of your life. In the last seven or eight days of your life, have you done something that you pledged you would not do? Did you lie? Oh, even a white one? Did you slander? Did you do something to shift blame? Jesus made it 33 years in his life and he never did anything like that. We rarely make it a week without doing it. But we're sure those Jews made a bad choice and we wouldn't have done so. How do we exalt ourselves so in our eyes? What in our lives? What in our history? says that we would have been on the right side of the cross. Friends, Israel has taken the beating just like an older brother makes a mistake first, but we were all destined for it. Given enough time, sin would have reigned in your life the same way it reigned in theirs, and the proof of it is the lives we've lived. But that is not the end of the story. He has covered us in His blood. He has saved us. He has taught us to tuck our cloak in our belt, turn our back to the world, begin to press into the kingdom of God. Amen. And if Amen. He has done that for us, certainly He will do it for them upon whom He first chose. Amen. Amen. Oh, Jesus, that you would save Israel, open a fountain in Jacob and cleanse them from sin. Oh, Holy One, we cry out to you and say, save your covenant people. Almighty God, that you would do things among us that would rouse them to envy, that we would carry out even greater things in your name. And 
Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. When the little lamb died, Israel was set free. When Jonah was thrown overboard, these men dedicated their lives to Yahweh. What has died that you might live? What are your vows? In what way has this substitution worked for you? And have you honored them, saints? Do you think that he takes more or less seriously the blood of his son versus the life of Jonah? More or less seriously the blood of his son versus the blood of a lamb? I would say we have the greater obligation, would you not? But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for about a day and a half. No. What's it say? Three days, Three days and what? Three days, Three days and what? Three well, let us count, friends, for just a minute. If Jesus was crucified, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he gave up the ghost on a Friday. From 3 o'clock on Friday to 3 o'clock on Saturday, it's 24 hours, yes? Yes. And on Sunday morning, he is not there at light. How do we get three days and three nights out of that? We get it the same way we get a painting like this. Men that have a superficial understanding of the word have set the pace for the world. And we just said, yes, sir. You painted it. It's beautiful. I believe it. I believe that when Moses set the appointed times that God said that they fit. That we don't have to work them into a corner. That we don't have to change our theology or take a black highlighter to our Bible. They simply fit. Turn with me to Matthew 12. We'll look at the 38th verse. The words of Jesus and the prophets will have to be in agreement. In Matthew 12, y'all all be there. Verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights. Three days and three nights. He actually says it twice. Many people in answering the Friday crucifixion quandary that so few have even thought deeply enough to consider. But those that have have all met with the same emaciated answer. Oh, it is a custom in the Middle East to say on the third day, and it includes parts of days, you know what is not a custom in the Middle East, has never been a custom in the Middle East, cannot be proven anywhere in literature from any time period? To say three days and three nights means anything other than three days and three nights. It is true that we can say on the third day I'll reach my goal, and it may include today, tomorrow, and the next day. That is true. It's an idiom even in English. But it has never been true that if we say 
between event A and B, that that would mean something other than three days and three nights. I love that our theologians are trying to defend us from the words of Jesus so that the traditions of men don't look wrong. But I would like to tell you that the traditions of men are wrong. Jesus has never been wrong. You know, the Queen of the South sought out Solomon's judgment. She came a great distance for it. She didn't sit back and assume she had it. The men of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. But we're sure we're right before the prophets even show up. We drop our battle lines. We list them as our doctrinal statements. And then we are unyielding in them despite all evidence to the contrary. I would like to say, friends, we name this life-changing ministries because occasionally you will have to change your mind. Amen. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm maturing in my salvation. Even Jesus, Luke said, grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and men. He did not simply have it all drop out of heaven. If he grew, how much more so should we? When we examine the chronology, let us look to John 12. And I promise this will not just be an intellectual argument. Are you bored? No. Have I wasted your time? As we look at John 12, we should probably back up to John 11. Let us look at 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim. Say Ephraim. Ephraim. A village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and they stood in the temple area, and they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found him out where Jesus was, he should report it, and that they might arrest him. This next verse is pretty important. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany. Now, doesn't the plainest reading of this text seem to suggest that Jesus traveled from Ephraim to Bethany and that he arrived at Bethany six days before the Passover? Yes, yes it does say this, right? Yes. Joy, give us the map that I gave you. No, keep going. There we go. On this map, here we have Judea. Here's Ephraim. If you go south from Ephraim, 15 miles, you hit Jerusalem. Right next to Jerusalem is Bethany. Do you see Bethany? Say yes. yes. Do you see Jerusalem? Say yes. yes. The distance between Bethany and Jerusalem, minuscule, yes? yes? The distance between Jerusalem and Ephraim, great, yes? yes? Well, that presents a problem. If Jesus is killed on Friday, what is six days before Friday? You guessed it. It is the weekly Sabbath. That would be Saturday. Seven days before would be the previous Friday. Six days before would be the weekly Sabbath. Do you know what a Jew is not allowed to do on the weekly Sabbath? He cannot walk from Ephraim to Jerusalem. He cannot walk 15 miles. In fact, he walks what is determined as a Sabbath day's walk. Do you know how far a Sabbath day's walk was? Oh, about the distance from Bethany to Jerusalem. This is a little problem with chronology, a little problem with custom. It's a little problem, isn't it? 
But we don't notice these things. We just want to be spoon-fed whatever Rome or whoever else would like to feed us. I, for one, want to eat the Word of God. Amen. I'm always looking for leaven. I'm always trying to throw out leaven. I examined last year's teachings. This year, I don't assume that they were right. I've grown since then. My hair has fallen out to make more room for what God is building in me. Oh, my. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany. Six days before the Passover. There's so many things that we could teach at this point, but I think that it might be better simply to jump into a couple assumptions. Is that okay? Yes. I will give you the chance to shoot them all down, any way that you would like to shoot them down. Let's assume for a minute that the crucifixion was not on a Friday. Let us back up three days and three nights and arrive at a crucifixion that puts Jesus in the grave Wednesday at 6. If we went in the grave Wednesday at 6, to Thursday at 6 is how many days? One. To Friday at 6 is how many days? Two. To Saturday at 6 is three days. And that would mean when they arrived Sunday morning before daylight, he would not be there. This is the assumption that I make, and it is based on three days and three nights. Incidentally, it also fits with six days before Passover. How interesting is that? Turn with me to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, let us read verse 1. Do you have a title? Above Matthew 21. The triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, a city right next to Bethany, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you at once, and you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt behind by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Uh, we have a quote here then from Zechariah. And we see that these men go forward and they prepare. Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling. Look at verse 17. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. If on the 10th of Nisan it happened to be a Saturday, a Sabbath, where would all Jews go on a Saturday? They would go to synagogue or they would go to temple and being in Jerusalem, Jesus went and presented himself on the Sabbath of triumphal entry right to the temple. Do you know what else was happening on the 10th of Nisan? People were selecting lambs and bringing them into their home. A lamb went to its home to be slaughtered and Jesus went to his father's house to be slaughtered. For the next four days, from the 10th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan, every day Jesus went from Bethany and Bethphage to the temple. On one of those days, he even said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He stood right there among them, allowing them to examine him, allowing them to make an emotional attachment to him, allowing them to identify with him before he would be put to death at their hands. At what place in your life did Jesus draw close to you? At what place did you become guilty? At what place did you realize my sin, if no one else's, killed the Lord of glory? You move from Saturday through Sunday where he curses a fig tree, and Monday he goes to the temple, and Tuesday he goes to the temple. Turn with me to John 13. Let us talk about cultural misconceptions 
and then I'm going to finish that teaching because I really want to take communion with you. John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. You know this story. What an interesting dialogue, though. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. You know, go back to Da Vinci's picture for me. When you're at Da Vinci's picture, and this is your conception of what communion is, this is your conception of the Last Supper, we sit at a European-style table. We're all, well, goodness, I guess we're a bunch of white guys. It's sunny outside. We don't bother ourselves with things like Passover lambs. Maybe we could just give a little wafer, you know? When you think like this, a master standing up, going to the foot of the table and washing people's feet, it makes no impact on us because we don't see it. Let's go to the next picture, the one that's over the communion table. This picture came from 1997, a place I was at in Israel. Kill the outer lights so that they can see this. This is how Jews, in fact, ate. This is called a triclinium table. It sits about 8 inches off of the ground, 10 inches off of the ground. And see, Jesus was always eating with people. It turns out because if you came to someone's house for a Seder, for a Passover meal, you would typically bring dishes. They would typically have killed the Passover lamb for you. Not just Seder meals, but all meals. This was a form of reconciliation. You would eat over a period of some... Five to six hours. Now, don't get mad, Protestants, but you drink four glasses of wine over that time period. And each one would symbolize a promise, not unlike Nick is going to make to Sam, a wedding promise. A promise to bring you out. A promise to free you. A promise to redeem you. A promise to bring you to uh, God's very own side and cherish you. They all come from Exodus 6.6. 6. And the seating was very important. To Europeans, if you sit at the head of the table, it means that you're a king, a monarch, somebody important. In fact, it's unusual to go to somebody's house and sit at the head of their table. But in Israel, it was not so. In Israel, you sat, this was the foot of the table, and everyone ate on their left arm. They reclined on their left arm, and they ate with their right hand. In India, if you sit at the table and you eat with your left hand, you will be excused from the table. It's simply not done in their culture, and I can't explain why my wife won't let me. But in Israel, you ate reclining on your left arm with your right hand. The foot of the table was here. And then in rank of importance, around the room, you go until you arrive at these three positions. These three positions are important. The master of the banquet sits here. This is second from the left-hand side. Tell me you see it. Because I got this cool little pointer thing. How cool not, right? This is the master of the banquet. The most honored position at the table is this one. And the second most honored is this one. 
This is really interesting because as we read something, you can turn back on the lights, but don't remove the picture. I want to show you what knowing the culture does to you. By the way, a doctor named Jim Fleming unearthed these, found them in so many homes that they were able to successfully conclude that Jews of the first century ate in this way. The Romans thought that it was so luxurious that they actually began to imitate the Jews who they considered inferior to them. After you ate, after your five or six hours, do you know what you did? You simply pushed back from the table and had a little nap. So it was not like going to Burger King together, friends. It was a whole event, a whole day. It was a way to reconcile. Does that bring new light to a scripture in Revelation that says, if you open unto me, I will come in and dine with you and you with me? Yeah. It was a form to reconcile. It was a way. It was a way to say, let's be friends and not fight. In John 13, we have the most unusual discussion. We have Jesus getting up and washing someone's feet. Now it says that Jesus got up, he would have been here, he stood, he took the towel off of his waist, and he walks around, and he's washing people's feet until he comes to this place. Who was sitting at the foot of the table, friends? Who's the last one to get their feet washed? Peter is. Do you think maybe that Peter was a little upset that he wasn't seated at the right or left hand? Do you think maybe Peter, being the student of God's word that he was, remembered that if you sit at the foot of the table, perhaps God will move you to the head of the table. All I know is that when Jesus got up to go wash his feet, it was not Jesus' job. Do you know whose job it was? The man who sat here. The reason there's a wash bowl here and there's a towel here in this painting or picture or depiction is because this was the role of the person who sat there. Much like a man who sits by the door might have to get up and close the door, this simply was the job. And when Peter saw him angry, whatever it was, whatever his motivation was, Jesus got up and did it for him. Is this a God who wants to exclude you or a God who wants to include you? I would say it's a God who wants to include you. As we read through and we see the prediction of the betrayal, how about this one? Verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill Scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. The reason that this position is honored, this one who would be seated behind Jesus, is because at a certain point in the meal, you would share your dish with him. It would be the best part of the dish. It would be the gravy. It's a sign of reconciliation that you would both dip your hand into that dish. As a symbolic way to say we're eating from the same cup, you and I. The master is sharing the best he has with that honored guest. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Very Jewish way to say I am God. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who I send. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified... I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss as to which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now if Jesus is here, who can recline on him while they're on their left elbow with their right hand up? It has to be John in this position. He's reclining on his left elbow and he simply leans back on Jesus' chest to speak with him. If you think about the dialogue we're fixing to hear, 
Jesus said it's the one who dips his hand in the dish with me. And the people didn't understand. And somebody motions to the guy reclining on Jesus, who is John. And the one who motions to him is Peter. And he says, hey, uh, is, it, is it me? Peter was seated in this position. He and John can see each other eye to eye. He knows that John and Jesus are speaking about something and he simply wants to know, are y'all talking about me? You ever walked into a room and you couldn't hear what they were saying, but it got quiet? Peter was experiencing that, but the master was there. Now all of the others assume that Jesus goes out to buy bread. Tell me the truth. If, if go to the Da Vinci picture, if we're seated in this scenario and Jesus said, I tell you, fellas, Whoever dips his hand in this dish with me is the betrayer. Are any of them not going to know who we're talking about? If Jesus says, it's the one who's dipping his hand, are they going to go, maybe Judas just left to go buy bread? See, not having the right cultural understanding does affect the way that we read the scripture. It takes a passage that frankly doesn't make sense when you don't understand the setting. How could they not know? Why are they discussing this? Is that a contradiction? And it makes it make perfect sense. Go back to the other one. When we're in this setting, it makes sense that Peter motions to John. It makes sense that John leans back and asks Jesus. And it makes sense that these guys all around here might not have understood what Jesus said to John. Understanding the Jewish concept brings the setting to life. This is not a quest for Eric to become Jewish or to make you Jewish. It never has been. It's a quest to better understand the culture that gave us the Scripture. Now, if we can make that kind of misunderstanding about Passover, if we can look at it and not see those things because we don't understand the culture, what else might we be missing? How about a Friday crucifixion? Let's go to that timeline. Well, we're on the topic of the timeline. Go to John 19. Say there when you're in John 19. Are y'all frustrated? No. Do y'all already know this and we should stop now? Okay, I just want to... Now some of you may be frustrated because I'm saying something you don't like. You know what we get to do as Christians? Forgive each other. You're going to love me anyway. I'm not going to give you a choice. I love you already. Here is John 19. Let us pick up in the 31st... No, let us pick up in the 14th verse. This is under the topic of the crucifixion. And the 14th verse says, It was the day of preparation. It was the day of preparation of Passover week about the sixth hour. Now what a strange way, if it is simply the day before the Sabbath, to say it's the day before the Sabbath. If it's just the weekly Sabbath, why doesn't he just say that? He wants you to know that they are preparing for the Passover week. See, on the 14th of Nisan, you would take that lamb into your house, but on the 15th, it would be a Sabbath no matter what day of the week it fell on. Look at 1931. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be, what's that say? Come on, say it. What's it say? Anybody have another translation in here? A high Sabbath. A what? A very special Sabbath. A what? Especially important. Especially important Sabbath. How about that? It's almost as if we went for, I don't know, a couple thousand years and didn't know that verse existed. What then constitutes as a high Sabbath that the argument begins? 
You know what constitutes as a high Sabbath? Seven special days in the year that God said are high Sabbaths, special Sabbaths. I read them to you. They came from Leviticus 23. You can read the rest of them there. They were instituted in uh, Exodus 12, a special Sabbath. If it were the weekly Sabbath, he simply would have said it was the weekly Sabbath. But he did not. He said it was a special Sabbath. Turn with me then to Matthew 27. Say there when you were there. I personally believe that Jesus was killed on Wednesday. That between 3 and 6 he was put in the grave. That as it became dark that evening, it started the Jewish day. Jews always start with the evening and move to the morning. It's a very Gentile thing to think we start in light and move to darkness. We actually start in darkness and God wants us to move towards the light. Boy, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? That we start in darkness and have to move towards light as opposed to starting in the light and gravitate towards darkness. Wonder which society God designed. Let us look at Matthew 27. How about 62? The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priest and the Pharisees went to Pilate. If it were the weekly Sabbath, then why wouldn't we simply say Sabbath? We say it's the next day, the one after the preparation day. It's the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, friends. It is the very special high day. But the way that the weekly Sabbath is referred to is simply the Sabbath. See, what happens to us is we're reading a cursory glance through the Gospels, and we see that the day that Jesus was killed on was the day of preparation for a Sabbath, Mark says. And we go, it must be Friday because we've never considered the other seven kinds of Sabbaths that there can be. And then we get really invested in the fact that we've done it this way for 70 years or 1,700 years or 2,000 years. And rather than look at what the scripture most obviously says, we would rather defend what we've always done, whether it makes sense or not. See, the 14th of Nisan being a day that Jesus was killed would leave the 15th be a day for unleavened bread, a Thursday. A Friday would also be a day of preparation for the weekly Sabbath, but would continue the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is why the girls went to buy spices on Friday, the day of preparation for the weekly Sabbath. It was their first opportunity. They were not able. They didn't expect Jesus to be killed Wednesday night. They didn't expect that having seen their friend killed and their world come apart, that on Thursday the 15th, they wouldn't be able to do any work, i.e. go buy spices, gather spices, embalm your master. Friday was their first opportunity to go gather those things. And Saturday, the scripture is abundantly clear. They rested in obedience to the Sabbath. You know, it's an interesting thing. If what I'm telling you is right, and it's not dogma to me, it's simply right. <laughs> if what I'm telling you is right, then the 17th, right? The 17th would be the weekly Sabbath. It would also be the day that at the close of it and beginning of the first day of the week, Jesus would have risen. Now let us think about that. Did anything else happen? Well, Genesis 8.4 says in the seventh month and on the 17th day, the ark of Noah rested on the mountain. 
That makes no sense. What difference does that make? It's the seventh day, the seventh month, the seventeenth day. Here we're talking about the first month of the year. Except their first month of their year used to be their seventh. Oh, isn't that interesting? We have a civil calendar and we have a religious calendar, but when they were a civil calendar, the whole world came under judgment and the judgment stopped on the seventh month and seventeenth day, which for them was New Year's. Now in the religious calendar, the whole nation's being covered in the blood, and the judgment is going to stop on the first month and seventeenth day of the year. Is there anybody that wants to go wow with that? <laughs> Now, don't misunderstand me. They didn't erase their calendars. They didn't erase the month of Tishri and replace it with Nisan. They didn't do that. They simply stopped counting from Tishri as the first of the year and started counting from Nisan. The marker moved. Everything changes in Jesus. It's a brand new beginning. But whether Israel civilly or Israel religiously, the judgment ceased. Are you hearing me? The very thing that we think condemns them actually saves them. And it has always been that way. There is no salvation outside of Messiah. There is no way to the Father except through the Son. If you deny the Son, you are denying the Father. Do not misunderstand me. Having said that, He is the King of the Jews. And they will look upon Him. They will call upon Him. And they will be saved. Paul said in Romans 11.26, And so all of Israel will be saved. Zechariah says it. I just want all of you to be saved. I figure God will take care of the rest as we do our part. There was this one other feast. This one other feast occurred after the weekly Sabbath. That would be the Feast of First Fruits. See, they were on the first day of the week. Matthew 28, 1 says they were going to the tomb. By the way, in Greek, Matthew 28, 1, the word Sabbath is plural. It's also that way in Luke in the parallel scripture. It doesn't show up that way in our English translation, and I am not smart enough to explain why. I can simply tell you, all of you are capable of grabbing a Bible lexicon. You can look it up online. The word is plural. The original writers conveyed that there were more than one Sabbath that week. But perhaps that was redundant since the original audience all understood that. I am interested in three days and three nights. And the reason that I am is because I don't think Jesus lied to us. I don't think he intended to mislead us. I don't think you can squeeze three days and three nights out of a Friday afternoon to not there on a Sunday morning. It also makes perfect sense to me that the resurrection of Jesus would occur at the close of a Sabbath and the beginning of a new week. But it makes sense to Americans that it happens at first thing in the morning. And why would it make sense to us? Well, that's when our day starts. Of course, their day started in the evening. See, we have a cultural identity crisis. Not having cared enough, having relegated Israel simply to the people that rejected Jesus, we don't always understand Jesus. I want to understand Jesus. Is there anybody here with me? So when we take communion tonight, will it make any difference whether he was killed on a Wednesday? No. Some people argue persuasively for a Thursday. Would it make any difference? No. If you want to stick to the Friday, that's okay. We're all wrong about some things. It's all right. What I'm trying to say is that's not the point. The point is when we examine the Word, we have to examine the Word from the standpoint of the culture that produced it. 
And whether you think I've done a good job of that or not, certainly we all need to do a better job. We fundamentally have to make a decision. Do we want to conform Jesus to our image? Make him a little more white for those of you that are white. Of course, all over Houston, you can go into houses and find him African American too, can't you? And by the way, the nations of the world have done the same thing with their gods. Are you surprised to find out that Buddha did not come from uh, China, did not come from Vietnam, did not come from Laos, didn't come from Japan, any of those nations? Buddha was from India. Have you ever seen a picture of Buddha that looked Indian? No, that's because as his teachings were accepted, people conformed the image of Buddha to their image. They were more comfortable with it. <coughs> ever wonder why we picked Jeffrey Hunter to be Jesus in our films? Tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. Everybody just wants Jesus to be a little more like them, and I would like us to be a little more like Amen. Jesus. Amen. Do you see what's at stake? This is not proselytizing in Judaism. I love her blonde hair and blue eyes, but I don't think Jesus had it. This is not proselytizing to Judaism. This is none of those things that fear mongers will say that it is. This is simply an honest examination of the scripture. Now let's get to what it means to us. Is your household covered under the blood? Are you sharing it with your neighbors? You know, Matthew 26 tells us something else. JJ, would you come on up here? Matthew 26, you can turn there. Y'all have gotten quiet, I'm concerned. Are y'all angry? Just so you know, when I ask those things, it's beneficial, it's informative, it won't change anything. But it, it is something that we are definitely interested to know. It lets us know whether we want to preach on this again five more times. And if you're angry, we will. I'm trying to tease you. Y'all are not interested in being teased. Look, we can go drag crosses through the neighborhood. And I'm all for it. I'll do anything that makes a scene for Jesus. I really will. And the whole world is going to... Say that Jesus was crucified on Friday, so I'll join right in with him. Doesn't bother me a bit, right? At least we're talking about the right thing. But isn't it interesting that if we're right, the day he was actually crucified on goes completely unnoticed? Isn't that really the story then? How much of Jesus' work really goes unnoticed in the pomp and pageantry that the church has made it? In Matthew 26, 30, Jesus had already had this, what we call the Lord's Supper, and they call the Passover. And when they had finished, they finished with a promise about doing this together in the kingdom of God. We're going to take communion after we worship a little bit. My real hope is that we get a chance to do it together in the kingdom of God. Some of us will do that together and some of you will fall short of it. But we're going to make every effort to make sure that you enter in through the narrow gate. You can have it. You just have to want it. It's time to quit playing God. Quit playing jokes with God. It's time to stop quoting scriptures you don't mean. If there was ever a day to get serious about your walk and to own up to the fact that it is our fault and no one else's probably today. There's so much of the word we haven't understood. So much of it we failed to apply. 
even a certain amount of it we've twisted to our own benefit just so that we weren't too uncomfortable, you know? This is a chance to change those things. We're going to worship for a while and then we're going to do something that Jesus did. Matthew 26, 30 says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The same man that gave us that painting, that depiction, after a lifetime of study, found Psalm 113 to 118 set to music, written in Hebrew. See, three times a year, the Jews went up to Jerusalem, and one of them was Passover. And as they ascended to Jerusalem, from wherever they were, it was an ascension. Going to where God's name dwelt was like raising your status. They began to sing and to praise His name. Every Jew closed Passover by singing the great Hallel. We have those words. It's Psalm 113 through 118. And after we take communion together tonight, we will close our service with the great Hallel. The great Hallel means the great praise. And oh, how you learn to praise Him when you've really been forgiven. If you write in ancient Hebrew the word Hallel, Sorry for those of you that don't like charismatics. I didn't make this step up. The ancient pictograph is a man with his hands raised. That's how you make the hay that begins the word Hallel. It seems that the beginning, the first, the best response of a man who has been set free and forgiven is to bring the greatest praise he knows how. Friends, after we take communion, I hope you will raise such a great praise in this place that the heavens will take notice. The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. How many times can you say that the Father seeks something? He is looking for the proper response to the sacrifice He made on your behalf. We're going to begin to worship. At some point during the worship, We'll invite everybody to come and get the elements of communion. I hate to even say that, right? How churchy. The elements of communion. But I didn't have time to kill a lamb. He was already killed. What we do now is just a dimly lit mirror for reflection. But for those of you with eyes to see, it can be just as me. A brand new start. A chance to Tuck your cloak in your belt, turn your back on the world, and go for broke with Jesus. Y'all stand to your feet, that's worship.